to Hotter Than Ever, where we uncover the unconscious rules we've been following, we break those rules, and we find a new path to being freer, happier, sexier, and more self-expressed. I'm your host, Erin Keating. Today, I talked to journalist Jessie Hempel about her long and successful career and how hard it is to call yourself successful. We talk about knowing when to pivot professionally, and we also talk about the joy and the pain of motherhood. We really got into it about gender and sexuality because Jessie grew up in a family where eventually everyone came out. Everyone. Her dad, her brother, her sister. She came out. Her mother even came out in her own way. And she wrote a memoir about it called The Family Outing. We talk about her brother who is trans but who carried a baby. You may have seen him chest feeding on the cover of Time magazine about 10 years ago. And what the term trans means today, where it has evolved to include so many different kinds of gender expression. This was an unexpectedly beautiful and emotional conversation, and I loved it so much. Take a listen. Jessie Hempel is many things. She is the host of the award-winning podcast, Hello Monday, where she explores the changing nature of work and how work is changing us. She is a senior editor-at-large at LinkedIn, who even knew that was a job. Her features and cover stories have appeared in Wired, Fortune, and Time, and she's been on every cable news network as an expert on the culture and business of technology. Jesse is also the author of the memoir, The Family Outing, which is the story about how everyone in her family had their own kind of coming out and how that changed how they each made sense of the world and of each other. I'm so excited to get into all these things and and try on all the hats you wear, Jesse. Welcome to Hotter Than Ever. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. So fun already. <laughs> well, that's what it's about. It's about figuring out how to have fun, even though the culture at large thinks we might not even exist anymore after 40. Uh, it's a certain liberation, right? Like nobody's looking anymore. That means you can do and be whatever you want. And it's not true that no one's looking. It's really not true. Okay. It is really, really not true. Yeah. We're all looking at each other and going, well, what do we do now? Yeah. Like, who who do we be now? Now that we have sort of reconciled the trials and tribulations of our youth, now that we have accomplished, look, you're a hugely accomplished person. You have done a lot of impressive things. You continue to do a lot of impressive things. Where are you today? We can go back and talk about the book. We can talk about your career. But let's start in the right now because you have a complicated story. I want to say I um, I have an allergic reaction to your um, pointing out that I'm accomplished. Like the very word accomplished mm. is giving me hives right now. Mm-hmm. It's because you're catching up with me in the spring of 2024. And if you met me when I was eight, Aaron, I would tell you that one day I was going to grow up and write a book. And everything else that I did in my life was something that I was doing on the way to the time when I finally grow up and write a book. And I loved and love my career as a technology journalist and a business journalist. But even in the before times, before I wrote and published a memoir, I still always thought of my career as the backdrop for my real life, which was going to be when I grew up and wrote a book. And then... I grew up and wrote a book, finally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sold it at age 43. I turned it in at age 45. Out it came at age 46. It did pretty well. The world liked it enough. It lived. 
And now I'm somewhere on the other side of the thing I wanted to do my whole entire life, wondering what's supposed to happen now. And honestly, Erin, if you ask me, truly, it's kind of a challenging moment. I hear you. I hear you. I think we all hit this inflection point where we go, I had these hopes and dreams in my youth. I worked and worked and worked. I struggled and strove. And if we're lucky and successful, which you are, every successful person I've ever talked to on this podcast is uncomfortable with the notion that they're successful. So you are not alone. I think it's very hard for women to say, yes, I'm a success because we're so nuanced in the way that we think about our lives. And it's so complex, the notion of success. It is not dollars in the bank. It is not being published in the places you've been published, appearing on the networks you've appeared on, being a recognized expert. It is is so holistic for women, I think. That's my thesis. I could be totally wrong. I'm not an expert at anything. I beg to differ. I think you might be an expert at this because you spend your life in conversation about it right now, right now while you're making the show. And that's really why I was really excited to spend this time with you. And so, of course, for the last 48 hours, Erin, I've really been thinking about, okay, well, <laughs> well, like, w- what is this moment? Like, what, what is this moment in, in my life, in my career? Like, what might I have to say about it? And so then there's my day job. And you rightly said, well, what does this title even mean? I want you to know that my wife said that to me over drinks last night. What? Last uh, night? Yeah, totally last night. So We did not. We did not coordinate. I was like, it was like you and Francis were talking in the background or something. At this moment in my life outside of the framework of my career, I am married to a wonderful woman named Francis. We got started on the process of having children very, very late. We had been together many years when one day we thought, well, let's try, which makes us in ripe old middle age parents to very small children. My daughter is two and my son is five. I am mostly tired. And on Wednesday nights, my wife and I go out for date night. It's about an hour and a half long from about 5.30 to 7. And we try not to fall asleep over our drinks. <laughs> it's just the stage we're in. But good and for you night, for carving out that time because I remember when my kids were that young and I could not prioritize my relationship on any level. Uh, it's tricky. It's tricky to even know what that means. And I'm not even sure that falling asleep over my beer last night counted as prioritizing. But at any rate, I've had this job for five years. And finally, last night over our beer, Francis was like, so I was looking at your title. What is this senior editor at large? I mean, what does that even mean? Which is, I think, one of the gifts of this stage of one's career, certainly of my career. I have grown senior enough in my particular job track that I've outgrown the notion of a job track. And at some point, I just kind of made up my own job and my own title, which, Erin, I think is kind of what you have done at this point in your life, too, right? For sure. For sure. I'm in the make ups period of my life. Yeah. I mean, look, I climbed the corporate ladder. I looked for – I was an actor, and I was like, this isn't a thing. I wasn't going to be successful at it because I hated auditioning, and I I hated seeking other people's approval. I wanted to be the boss. And so I found a path that was creative and fulfilling and exciting where there were titles and levels and increases in salary and direct deposit and all the grown-up things that I wanted. Healthcare. Yeah, healthcare. I wanted to be a grown-up. I really pursued a vision of adulthood and career and identity 
that made sense to me in the conventional world. In my heart, I wanted to be a freewheeling bohemian who didn't care about these things, a, a libertine and someone who just pursued my own artistic projects and pleasure, but I am not independently wealthy. And so I did all the grown up things in the way that I could figure out to do because I wanted to keep living in New York, which yeah. is where I lived forever. Um, and then I hit a breaking point. Yeah, I hit a breaking point and the universe sort of kicked me off that perch. And now I'm like every day I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> I know I have things to do, but I've assigned them to myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like that breaking point always comes. And when it comes, it feels so painful. And only in retrospect, do you see in so many ways that our breaking points are our gifts, right? They're the moments where we reevaluate all the external expectations that are foisted upon us and ask ourselves, like, what are my values? What do I actually value? And if you're a woman, my God, you learn to value what everybody else values about you long before you ever learn to value yourself. At least I think so. Mm. Hey, say more about that because that rings true for me. <sighs> well, I just think that like you're born into a set of expectations, right? And those expectations usually are are shaped with love, like your parents lift you up on the day of your birth and look at you and think, I hope she becomes a lawyer because I'm a lawyer and it's a great career path and I want her to be happy or rich. <laughs> no one who's a you lawyer want. has ever wanted anyone else to be a lawyer who they loved. I mean, I, okay, that's so true. I'm even thinking about that. And I was like channeling my dad. And by the way, he totally left the law. He was so out of the law even before. Oh, he it's was such like, a hard yeah. career. I mean, it's so yeah. great and so intellectually mm -hmm. stimulating. But my dad's a lawyer too. It's not. It's no, hard work. But you know, you can do a lot of fun things with law beyond being a lawyer. That is what yes. my dad discovered. Yes. Ooh, um, I did yes. something really fun with law. I chose not to pursue it. <laughs> Me too. My brother too. <laughs> the both of us are like, yeah, that was great for him, for my dad, but no. Mm -mm. Yeah, uh, not for, me. Not for uh -uh. me. But you know, you're born into this set of expectations and it takes a while for you to understand that you can reevaluate them. And then if you happen to be born uh, a woman or a person of color or a person who is who lives outside of the mainstream paradigm in any way, I think you're saddled with extra layers of expectations. And for many people, I think the first sets of decisions that we make about what we're going to do with our lives are shaped by those expectations. And often, by the way, there are good things that come of it. Sure. I'll give you a small example, right? I was born and raised in an upper middle class family in Massachusetts. Money was super tight, but that was my cultural background. And I, there was always the expectation that I would go for go to college. I, I went through high school with the expectation that I would go to the very best college that I could get into. And I did that. Yeah. And it shaped my life in positive ways. There are many, many ways that the expectations that we're born into serve us, right? But then there are always the moments where we fall out of alignment with those expectations. It mm. happens more and more, not just once. It happens over and over in our lives. And it's always very painful. And I can think of how they've happened in my career and in my personal life. And for my career in particular, like I, I began life as a writer. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. But because money was tight, I also knew I was going to have to pay my own rent the day that I got done with college. And I was also going to go into that post-college life with some student debt. Mm -hmm. I was going to have to take care of those things quickly. 
Mm-hmm. So I looked around to figure out how writers made money. Have you figured that out? Uh, well, I'm just <laughs> so going to let you know as soon as I figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> right? I graduated with a degree in poetry. And in the late 90s, I was with a friend who had a nursing degree in New York City, probably living there at the same time you were. Mm-hmm. But it was before the internet, so there's no way I ever would have bumped into you. Mm-hmm. Um, had like three friends, and those were the only people I knew that whole little window of my life. But we went to Barnes & Noble and we pulled this book off the shelf called Starting Book of First Year Salaries. And we looked up nurse and it said $51,000 a year. And we were like, Patty, you lucked out. Score. You are set. What are you going to do with $51,000 a year? And my major had been poet. And so we looked up poet. <laughs> it wasn't even in there. $12 a year. Twelve. I thought that was a joke or a typo. Like, why even put it in there if you're going to put $12 a year? But right from the start, I knew that my chosen major in college was not going to be how I made money off the thing I loved. And so I pursued journalism, which, by the way, in 2024, to say that pursuing journalism is kind of like saying pursuing poetry. You're not really going to have stability or the promise of a pay gig. But in the late 90s, when we got into this business, there was a promising career path there. You you could make something of it, right? And that's what I wanted to do first. And Erin, it it worked out for me. It worked out very well for me. I went to journalism school. went to journalism school in California because I could get in-state tuition. I went Uh to UC Berkeley. Uh And then I talked my way into an internship at Business Week magazine. Did not care at all about business, but it did seem like business journalists got paid more and were more likely to keep their jobs. And I also discovered something about business, which is that good stories, all good stories, and you definitely know this, they have drama at their core. Mm. And drama seems to come from either sex or money. So if you go Mm. looking for what's going on around the decisions people are making about who they're going to take for a lover, you will find a good story. And if you go looking at what's going on with money and what people are doing to get it or to lose it, you will also find a good story. And so I very quickly fell in love with business, not because I cared about money at all, but because I loved drama and there was so much of it. And I spent 15 years as a magazine journalist writing those really a what journalist sorry what are those mag- what's mag- that so it's like it's paper it's thin <laughs> there was one called business week then i went to one called fortune and then i went to one called it's a wired you i think are being sarcastic but i have to tell you <laughs> when i was at wired i was in the back of an uber with a young you know, it was in somewhere in downtown san francisco so somebody making a website and i was in the back of an uber with them and it was one of these shared rides because it was cheaper that way yeah and i started a conversation with her because i just do that with everybody and she's like oh my gosh you work at wired i can't believe you work at wired that's amazing And she was like, I read Wired. I love Wired. I look at it every single day. And I was like, oh, you know, I write for the magazine. And I expected that to be a moment of like a real reverence. Like, oh, right. And she was like, oh, Wired's a magazine? And I was like, oh, wow. Times have changed. Wired is probably no longer illegible magazine. (laughs) The beginning. (laughs) When everyone had just discovered graphic design. Yeah, I remember the I lived in San Francisco in the 90s and I remember the early days of Wired and how heady it was. Right. How cool it was and how 
next level, both the journalism and the typefaces and the the neon colored fonts you couldn't read. Were, well, yeah, that, I mean, yeah. inscrutability was part a... of the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> Signature of Wired magazine. <laughs> and look, if you're my age, particularly if you were living in the Bay Area at that time, and I was too, I, I swear we followed each other around there. We're very suspicious mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. It is the magazine of our time. It is like our generation's magazine yeah. in many ways. And I loved writing for it until I didn't. And I had this moment where I fell abruptly out of love with my career. And it was shocking. It was shocking for me most of all. I had become a senior writer in technology. Wired itself was not doing terribly well financially, but I was very secure in my role at Wired. I was not concerned that it would disappear. And I had a role where I had an extensive network of people who gave Mm -hmm. me tips and stories. And I got to choose what I wanted to do and go out into a field that I then loved, technology, and write the stories that mattered to me most. At some point, I just woke up feeling kind of dead inside about the whole thing. Mm. And I started to feel kind of like a fraud. I remember one story I did where I flew all around the world with Facebook's executives looking at Mark Zuckerberg's efforts to connect the world to the internet. And I probably took four international trips for this story that probably ran in the magazine at 6,000 words. Um, and, And I liked the travel all right. But I knew that something had to change because I didn't feel in love with this opportunity. I knew from the outside that this was like, this was it. But from the inside, I was kind of like, I'm sick of listening to these guys talk about the things they're building. I don't really believe in them anymore. And mm. it was a it was a big inflection point for me. I was probably just about 40. Mm, isn't that amazing? And sometimes we stuff those inflection points down and we go, mm-hmm. oh, it's just a blip. It's just a moment. I built this thing. I need to stay in it. I, yeah. Who am I to say there's more for me or there's something different for me out there in the world? I've got the best yeah. you can have in this right. in this profession, right? And then sometimes you have to listen to that and go, yeah, okay. Like I did this. I am yeah. not a person who likes to go backwards and I'm not a person who likes to stay. Stasis, right? Stasis, right? Yeah. Oh. So like, yeah. I mean, I'm good. If I find a job that I love and the jobs that I have loved the most, which have been at the independent film channel and at Snapchat, I was at each of those places for almost six years. Like those were huge, fertile, rich career defining moments for me. But then when it's done, it's fucking done. So true. I mean, that is the most honest thing I've ever heard say about that, like that moment of my career. Like, it's just done. It's just done. Yeah. Um, I also had some personal stuff going on. In particular, my wife and I living a life that we completely understood the contours of. We were living on the Upper West Side in an apartment we had just spent close to a year renovating. We had chosen all of the kitchen tiles and we had a dog. And from my perspective up until about that moment in life, I was like, okay, this is what I want. This is what I want. Mm, I and then one day it wasn't enough there either. It wasn't enough there. Right. And we decided that we would try to have children. And I'll tell you, honestly, I, I was a little ambivalent about the whole thing. It was an intellectual exercise for me. I had felt in my thirties 
furious with the cultural machine that kept trying to tell me that I wanted children. Mm. In fact, I was writing, as I said, about all of these executives in Silicon Valley. And I remember at some point, Sheryl Sandberg invited me for a coffee and over coffee. I mean, she at that point was not a friend. She was an executive I was covering and somebody I respected a lot and also followed every single thing she said. And she sat me down and she said, um, what's your plan to have children? Because you're doing really well in your career and I just want to support you. And I, my face turned totally red and I was like, I, well, I, I don't have a plan. And she said, well, you should really think about that now. And I said, well, I have thought Fuck about off. that. I don't, That's my I don't reaction. want children. I don't want children. It's none of your business, but I don't want children. It's such an overreach. Um, That's insane right. to me. Yeah. Well, but that and is it, what this culture tells us is okay. I mean, this is right. It's not yeah. about Sheryl Sandberg, right? It's about every single person in your life when you are a 30 year old woman and mm-hmm. in that entire decade of your life who's like, hey, by the way, here's the expectations of you. You've got a time limit on this, so get to it. How can I support you? But of course, how can I support you always means let me tell you what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And I hit 40 and I was like, see? And then I was like, wait a minute. Now that no one's telling me whether I want this, I, <laughs> I guess I get to evaluate whether I want mm, it. Mm. And my wife was pretty excited about it, that we should give it a try. And I kid you not, we were very lucky in this department. You know, it's a science experiment when it's a couple of ladies, right? Mm-hmm. And first time around, we ended up pregnant, Aaron, with twins. Me too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> first time around after like, you know, a year and a half of fertility stuff. Ugh. But first IVF. <laughs> I mean, I got twins. I have twins. <laughs> I have twins too, although, and this is the more challenging part of the story only one's surviving. Oh. Right. So you sit with that for a second. Hmm. And we're five years out from that. And what happened for me in that year was first we became pregnant right away, and I panicked and got excited. And then we went to the doctor to see how things were going. And the doctor said, guess what? It's two. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I was like, oh, maybe one, right? I burst into tears when I found out I was pregnant with twins. Oh, my goodness. Every feeling. Every feeling. Did you you, you panic? Oh, yeah. Because I was like, I don't even know how to do one. Right. Right. Like one felt like it was just going to blow everything up. And I wanted that. I was chasing that really hard. And I was working like a soldier to get my body to come in line with what I wanted. Um, And then, I I mean, it's so dumb. I mean, I I really don't think things through is what it turns out. Um, (laughs) We put in two embryos. Yeah. I just assumed we had failed and failed and failed. And so I assumed if we got one, that would be the best we could do. And then they were like, oh, yeah, both of these clusters of cells have heartbeats. Yeah. And I was like, what? But also, I am yeah. I think I would have been a total control freak with one. Yeah. So I think the universe I mean... gave me two to get me <laughs> to just take it on as a good enough parent and not a perfect parent. Yeah, I mean, that's the lesson of parenting right there. Yeah. But, yeah, so we grew accustomed to and then very excited about the idea of having two. Mm. And somewhere around 21 weeks, somewhere in there, we went in and they said, oh, you know, number two is trending small. We don't we don't know if he is going to make it. Mm. And living in liminal space is in so many ways, I think, more challenging than knowing or not knowing. And so we entered this phase of our lives where we just didn't we didn't know what was going to happen. 
And the deal with Aster is his name. The deal with Aster, his brother Jude was just doing exactly what a baby's supposed to do. But Aster, when you drink through his umbilical cord, imagine a straw that you suck and it smushes in so that you can't get as much liquid out of it as you want. That's what his umbilical cord was doing. And they said, oh, he's not going to make it. Just go home and wait. But then he kept making it. He kept making it. And so at 28 weeks, they said, oh, well, you know what? Here we are at 28 weeks. Let us know when you want to deliver. And at this point, it's not a medical question. It's an ethical question because the right decision for Jude, which would be to stay in that womb as long as possible, is the wrong decision for Aster, which would be to get him out as quickly as possible. He's made it this far. Let's get him out. And so my wife and I went home, read everything we could on the Internet. A really great doctor gave us some great advice, Aaron. He said, listen, ask no one for advice. Don't call Mm. your mom. Don't call your best friend. Just go home and understand that when you make a difficult decision of any sort, you're never going to know for sure that you make it right. There's never going to be a day when you wake up and say, oh, I'm glad I made it this way. Just make it. So we decided to deliver at 29 weeks. And Aster died one day before. And so we went in to deliver and they were like, oh, no, you're only going to give birth to one live baby and you're going to have a stillbirth. And we didn't even know what that meant. Mm. And I went into work and said, what am I going to do? And these things are connected, right? The career change and the life pivot happened at exactly the same time. And it wasn't by chance. So at that time, I had been writing about this tech company and the CEO of that tech company said, oh, come work for LinkedIn. LinkedIn really takes care of people. We'll figure out what you do later. We'll give you a parental leave and a bereavement leave. And then we can get to figuring out what you're going to do. So when I took this job with this weird title, I didn't know what the job was and neither did LinkedIn. But I did know with every ounce of knowing in my body that the change was presenting itself and I needed to trust it and let it unfold rather than trying to game it out and understanding what it was. And so I took this job at LinkedIn and before I started, my wife went into labor because that's what happened once Esther died. They sent us home and my wife carried Jude and Aster for another couple of weeks until she went into labor. And and in many ways, we we're really, really lucky. We have gotten to know so many families, and I'm sure there are listeners who have had stillbirths. And it is a very alienating and awful and isolating mm. experience. And very often, you don't know until it is happening. And we were in the unusual position where because of Jude, we knew beforehand And so we worked with a doula whose job it is to help parents who don't bring their babies home. And it was profound and it was beautiful. And in some ways, it was the reason why, while both Francis and I are immensely sad about our loss, it doesn't feel like a trauma. It doesn't feel like it got stuck in our systems. It feels like a really sad thing that happened in our family. Uh, She gave birth to Jude and Aster on a Thursday. We had a service for Aster, and we cremated him. On the Friday, we brought Jude home from the hospital on Saturday, and I went to orientation at LinkedIn on Monday. You, oh, stop it, Jesse. I can't. This story is like, 
Mm-hmm. It's so profound to be a mom. Mm-hmm. It's so profound to be a parent. It's so profound to carry babies. It's so profound to give birth and to experience birth and death at the exact same time when you're going through a rebirth. Like, I mean, this is the shit of life, right? (laughs) This is the magic of life. This is the sorrow of life. I think when people choose to be parents, this is what we are accepting into our lives. Yeah. Is this potential for infinite loss. Yeah. And infinite joy. Yes. Right? And they go hand in hand. You can't open up yourself to one without accepting the possibility of the other. You just can't, right? Yeah. 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 And I have friends who have chosen not to have kids, and I totally get it. I get it. You know what? They want to feel like they have more control over their lives. They have more agency for themselves as an adult, as an autonomous person in the world. And I have total respect for that because this shit is so hard. It was it was the hardest thing I hope we ever go through. And look, it's still hard. We just hit the fifth anniversary in the fall and it hit me like a Mack truck, except I would think I would see a Mack truck coming and I didn't see this. Mm -hmm. Just one day I was like flat and I was like, what's wrong with me? And I think the gift of my relationship and I'm not going to say that it is as like a spicy extra of lesbianism but we're two lesbians in new york city we believe in therapy and we talk about everything we talk 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 and so we have gotten just tons of mental health care and support we have sought it for ourselves we've supported each other you know it is still something that we actively process but the other thing that it gave me erin is a little bit of the fuck it I didn't have the fuck it before. Before this happened, I was climbing the ladder and I was nailing it enough of the time that I just tried to color in the lines and reach for the next rung on the ladder and not make anybody too uncomfortable. But then after this happened, I was just like, God, every single thing I do needs to matter because life is short. And I know that's cliche, but there's nothing like a severe loss to make you realize that again and again. This is the time we have, and what have I done, and what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah, why does it take that to give women the fuck it, you know? Why does it take something so profound to get us to stop trying to please everybody else? For me, it took, like, getting laid off, getting divorced, almost dying of COVID. It took this sort of cataclysm for me to be like, wait a minute, this is my life. This is my one and only life. Yeah. You know, what am I doing with it? What does it even feel like, right? What part of it belongs to me? All of it. All of it. Yeah. And is that when you decided to write the book? Yeah. So that was when I decided to write the book. Uh, Well, there was one other. Sure, because you didn't have enough going on with the new job and new baby and. New job, new baby. And then there was one other thing, which is like just when we were kind of getting our wits about us and getting our sea legs as parents, there was a pandemic. Oh, that. And uh, yeah. And it was like March of 2020. And I had had this really awesome experience a few years before that. Where my brother, who is transgender, had gotten pregnant and he was going to have a baby. And in 2016, that was really unusual. And also in 2024, it's still pretty unusual. I was going to say, that's not an everyday. No, no, 
But in 2016, when he got pregnant with his first child, he really, really wanted to share that story. And so we came up with the idea that I was a magazine writer. I, I did usually write about Facebook and Google. But what if I tried writing about his pregnancy? And so we collaborated. I interviewed him over the course of his pregnancy, and I wrote an article about that pregnancy for Time magazine. And it was, I think, the best performing story of the year for Time. I'd like to think it's because of my really thoughtful words about his pregnancy. And also, he posed on the front of the magazine chest feeding a baby. And you see a man chest feeding a baby with a beard on the front of the magazine, or rather, the internet, and you click. I you remember click. that. So, I honestly remember that. I read the article to prepare for this conversation, but I do remember that moment. I remember thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> That's so complicated. Yeah. That's so challenging. And it plays into your whole family story. Well, and so, what you wrote in the book, this conversation, there's so much about self-definition and acceptance. And I want to hear how all of these things sort of pull together for you. Well, so now it's March 2020. And as a result of that Time Magazine article, I had started a relationship with a very commercial agent, a literary agent who, you know this because I think that you probably have your own version of this experience, but who's representing your work so much is attached to the kind of work you can even do. And this woman was a bulldog, the kind of person that you would not want to meet in a back alley because she probably could break your knees, but who you absolutely want in the ring on your behalf yeah. because it doesn't get any better. And so in March of 2020, when COVID happened, I was just trying to keep my head above water. I was living in my in-law's house in my wife's mother's childhood bedroom with a 15-month-old baby and a dog trying to figure out if my job would still be there tomorrow. And I was depressed. I was super down, which, by the way, was not unique because who wasn't, right? Right. But I did have Suzanne calling me and being like, hey, now's a good time. Like, now's a good time for what? <laughs> like, now's this a good time agent. for surviving. Now, now's a good time to write a book. Now's a great time to pitch a book. What do you want to write? And I was like, I don't think it's a good time. I don't know if you know what's going on in my life, but I can guarantee you it's not a good time. And she said, no, no, no. Now is a moment when publishers are really nervous about the future and they want to make sure that they're going to have books to sell in two years because surely this will be over in two years. Ha ha. But writers aren't really pitching their ideas. So if you ever had a dream, now is the time to pitch it. So I came back to her and I was like, oh, let me write this book about artificial intelligence. And she was like, snooze fast. And I was like, okay, well, I could write this book about this tech person who's really important. And she was like, I want you to think about the thing that you would write if there was no way anyone was going to say no. The thing that when you die, you want to look back and say, oh, I got to do that. Wait, Jesse, so wait, I was let's like, well, stop on that thought. Okay. That thing you would write if there was no way someone would say no. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a, that's like a tattoo, right? Like a, <laughs> that life you would live if there was no way people would judge you or whatever you feared would happen would happen. Yeah. You know, the decisions you would yeah. make if you felt totally free 
to make the decisions you wanted to make. Mm-hmm. Something to think about for I all think, of us. Well, I don't know about you, but I think we're so afraid that it won't happen that sometimes we, or I'll speak for I, can't even get to the truth of what they no. are. Like, even when I was given this opportunity, I came with two books that were absolutely in line with my personal brand that I felt like I had entitlement and permission to write before I finally could get clear, even for myself, right. about what the real opportunity right. was. Because that's right. what we do. Yeah. Then I came back to her and I said, if you're really asking, I would write a memoir about my family. Kind of like the story about my brother, but just where I tell the story of how everybody came out of the closet. Because, Aaron, it's true. Every, everybody did come out. I'm like the boring gay in the family. <laughs> just like, just run-of-the-mill gay. <laughs> But my father came out after a 23-year marriage. My sister came out as bisexual. She was always a popular girl in high school. She always seemed to me to have her stuff together. Like she was who I thought that I wanted to be. And chief on the list of attributes was straight. She just always seemed that way to me and I wanted to be that way. And then she came home and said that she had fallen in love with a very butch Australian surfer. And then, of course, my brother came out as transgender. And throughout that whole process, my mother, as her marriage fell apart, came to terms with and came out as a survivor of a series of crimes that were so terrible that it took me years to really allow myself to learn about them. Mm. And that whole process just felt like maybe there's a book there. And my agent said, oh, yeah, I think we got a book there. And she came back and she said, we're going to call it the family outing. You have a book deal. Turn it in in 18 months. This agent is a that genius, was a little daunting. by the way. <laughs> she is. She is. She is a genius. Can I make a joke about um, being bisexual? <laughs> I mean, bring That's one it. way to be popular. <laughs> <laughs> Don't close off any possibility. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a, like a, a slightly inappropriate joke that, you know, when we were in my 20s, my late 20s, my sister and my brother and I, they're both so cool. And we had a little bit of time where we all lived in or around the same nice. city and we could all hang out together and we all had a social life together. And I wish that I knew it would end. I'm so nostalgic mm. for it now. But like, I remember going out with some friends and this one friend was giving us a hard time about like, what was in the drinking water at the Hempel <laughs> Seriously? House? Seriously. Like, she's like... I'm going to make you all T-shirts and the T-shirts are going to say Hempel Muff Diver. And I'm like, what? And then she's like, except your sister. That's going to be Hempel Muff Diver part-time. <laughs> so there I see your bisexual joke and I raise ah, you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I wanted to be bisexual. Well, you know, there's still time. There is still time. I tried. You know? It wasn't for me. I love that we live in a moment in our culture where like uh, – that's a mainstream conversation. Yeah. We are in the moment of a, just a grand reconceptualization of sexuality and gender. And I am here yeah. for it. I'm here it for it. It is fascinating. It's also very complex, right? Everything is so nuanced and complex. And I think the culture that we yeah. live in today, especially in the sort of culture war landscape that we live in, nuance just gets lost yeah. and everything gets flattened out. and context gets disappeared and I so I told my boyfriend who is conservative and a former marine 
who I've never dated. I've never known anyone who wasn't liberal. Like, I'm not kidding you. I really am a fish yeah. who just realized that she lives in water. Being in this relationship is a revelation to me of my own bias. Talk about unconscious bias. Holy shit. I have the biggest liberal unconscious bias that ever was. So uh, I told the Marine that we were going to talk about trans stuff. And obviously trans yeah. stuff is up for the culture today. Yeah. Very and much one so. conversation he and I have had is about the fact that in my liberal bubble like trans is a big thing that's up and a lot of the people i know who are parents are dealing with gender identity with their kids and yeah i have a what i think of as a very high percentage of people in my life whose kids identify as trans yeah and he's like i don't know anyone whose kids identify as trans and i think it's interesting to try to understand why that is yeah, and and how trans might not be a big enough concept like that. It's yeah. the definition of it might we might need better words to talk about this sort of gender continuum and people trying to get outside of boxes. Let's be clear. We really need better words and more words. And we need to get around the idea that we think that words and getting the right words on what is happening, which is really a cultural revolution, is going to help us to come to a common understanding about it. I do think, though, that we do we do well to try to talk about it and that, um, you know, you say that you live in your liberal bubble. And I think in particular in, in a liberal bubble, there is a rush to be accepting of it that prevents people from actually attempting to understand mm. it out of fear that they're going to use the wrong words, they're going to say the wrong thing. You know, what you should do, Aaron, is you should just you should just put your pronouns under your signature in the email and then just not talk about it. That is a safe way for the liberal to proceed on trans issues. And even the idea of thinking about trans issues sort of belies a, a larger idea, which is that I think that the generation that comes after us has finally put it together from the start in a mainstream way that gender is, in fact, a social construct and is up for inviting in the idea that it can be expressed in myriad ways. And that is uncomfortable for anybody who didn't grow up with that language or that understanding around it. Or the concept of and gender as something beyond parts. Yeah. Right. So when I talked to my boyfriend about it, he's like, no, you're a guy or you're a girl. This is how we are made. And he's not wrong. I mean, what he's talking about is sex, right? You're born into a sex. Maybe your sex is in alignment with your gender. Maybe your sex is indifferent to you and your gender is all over right. the place. But that whole way of thinking about the world is really. Nice. Yes. And it doesn't exist everywhere. We get access to different types of vocabularies around it. Right, which I think is part of the, yeah. the clue to why my cohort is in this conversation with their kids. Yeah. And by the way, like my brother is a 40, goodness now, how old is he? A 43-year-old transgender man. And his experience in the world is really, really different than the young people who are coming of age and evaluating and reevaluating their gender expression today. And I think that there is even just this massive cultural gap there 
the people older than my brother who came out as trans were fairly binary right. about it. I think my brother was in the first cohort of people who, you know, when my brother went to ask for hormones, he also knew he wanted to carry a baby. And the response that the doctors gave him initially was, oh, no, you're not trans. You want to carry a baby. Like, how could you be trans? Maybe you're depressed. And my brother well, those are the choices. was like, <laughs> you're either trans like, or depressed. I, I, and it is so that carrying a baby in our culture is perceived to be the most like fundamental expression or full expression of womanhood. When you think about what it is to be female gendered, it is to carry a baby. And so decoupling that idea, um, carrying a baby from wanting to be a woman. I mean, look, I, maybe it's easy for some people listening to this. It's still not easy for me. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. But that's what my brother was asking. And it's representative of a shift, right? My brother is among the first cohort of transgender people who said, I'm going to decouple my sex and what I, my body can do from my gender and how I think about it. And I want to go on hormones and I want to present as the man that I believe that I am. And I am a man who wants to carry a baby. And if you ask me to understand that, I think you're asking the wrong Mm. question. I think the right question is, how do we respect that? doesn't matter if you understand it, really. What do you do in the world to initiate respect? Mm. And even in a different place on that continuum of understand and respect is this the difference between something my boyfriend and I talk about is tolerance and acceptance. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I can tolerate people being however, but I don't have yeah. to accept it. I don't have to be okay right. with it. I don't have to be comfortable with it. Don't tell me I have to be okay with things. And right. that's fascinating to me because as liberals, we have to be okay with everything. Like that is us. <laughs> That's a, what defines us. We're cool with what you want to do. And we're going to support you in the full expression of your identity and your empowerment in the culture. And we're going we're gonna to drive the cultural narrative around those things. Right. Is that a liberal narrative? I think so. Here's, t- I mean, and this is not a political podcast. <laughs> you know, we swim in the waters of these conversations all the time, even if yeah. we don't think of ourselves as political or we don't. You know, I don't want it to be political. I just want us to be humans doing whatever we want to do and tolerating each other's differences and being cool with everybody kind of getting on a level playing field. Like, that's what I want. I see that as a liberal value. It also might be a libertarian value. You know, so I don't know. (laughs) I don't know because I'm literally a fish in water. So Okay, well, let me ask you a question. I know that you're doing the question asking, so you can take a pass. But do you think that this ideological schism, how will it be resolved in your, your life with your boyfriend, your most personal space? Can you live with that difference over time and hold it? I know nothing about the future. Hmm. I, I really, I'm crazy about this guy. I'm learning a lot about him, about myself, about how I tolerate difference, about how I accept no for an answer sometimes. Like, I'm a spoiled brat. I want a fucking yes all the time. And this is a person who has a very clear definition of who he is and who he is in the world and what he believes. And, And we get into these things and it's upsetting sometimes. 
And what we have agreed to do, and we joke that we're healing the nation, (laughs) is that (laughs) as long as we treat each other like these opinions have been formed through thoughtful inquiry and it's not because the other person's an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they just don't get it or whatever. Like we find common ground, but there are places where we will never align. And honestly, that may be part of what makes it so hot. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah, of course, you know, of course, of course. And I'm just trying different new things in my life. And I don't have an answer. And there will be contexts in my world that he will never feel comfortable in. And he doesn't want to be a part of that. Yeah. And there will be Mm contexts in his world where I will feel uncomfortable. But as a woman, I will probably compromise and be okay. Like show, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like showing up. Well, let's look at that as it. A huge gift that your gender gives you, the ability to shapeshift like that. Mm-hmm. Rather than look at it as a mm-hmm. compromise, look at it as a magical skill mm-hmm. that you have. And I like to be next to him. Yeah. I mean, that's that's all you got to mm-hmm. say. We could we could stop there. Yeah. I don't yeah. have any answers. I love that. Talk about liminal space. Yeah. Jesus. Jesse, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but I do want to ask you <laughs> the question that I ask everyone on this podcast, I want to ask you if there are any deal terms in your life today that you want to reopen, that you want to renegotiate. I will tell you that I anticipated this question. If you listen to the podcast, I guess you would. (laughs) (laughs) My next challenge is to learn to say no to people who want things from me. You would think I would have learned that by now. But there is a new layer of learning to unpack. I really hate disappointing mm. people, Aaron. I still do, even at this point of my life. Somebody, particularly somebody that I love, wants something for me. It's hard for me to say no, and it's really hard for me to say no and not give a reason. Oh, yeah. Right? And I've been thinking about that a lot recently because the gift, of course, of the pandemic was that it just it reduced 80%, sometimes up to 100% of your external demands. And I want the clarity that came with that time without the pandemic and quarantine Mm. part. And I think that comes from saying no more. I think that's right. I think that's right. It's extraordinarily hard. Yeah. Are you good at it? No, I'm working on it. I'm working on it in my relationship with my ex. I'm working on it in my relationship with my family, with my kids. I more jealously guard my independence and my own time, my own decision making now than I ever have because I have the freedom to do that at this moment Yeah. while I'm trying to build something new. But the amount of times that I've written and rewritten an answer where I'm saying no to something on an email, oh gosh, you know, yeah, right? where I start to write excuses for why. And then I say, no, Aaron, don't. You don't even have to give an excuse. You just need to say it. Okay, no is a complete sentence. And then <laughs> and then I find some softer way to say no. It yeah, doesn't betray me. Right? But yeah. that's still labor. Yeah. I mean, that's still a task. Yeah. And you want to reduce all the friction in your head to the resolved confidence of like a one word no. Sorry, I can't do that. And, Not available. Yeah. Let it sit. Yeah. 
Erin, but if you call me again, I'm definitely going to say yes, because this has been really, really fun. I have loved this conversation. You are amazing. Thank you for being so revealed and so, so present. And I'm grateful for you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hotter Than Ever. There is something that I need from you, dear listeners. I need you to write or call or DM or text in about any questions you may need a spot of earnest, irreverent, unfiltered and unqualified advice on. Divorce, breakups, online dating, sex, relationships, career pivots like we talked about in this episode, body image, beauty, aging, or things of that ilk. I am here for it. DM us on Instagram at Hotter Than Ever Pod or call and leave a message or text your question to 323-844-2303. That is the Hotter Than Ever Hottie Hotline. You guessed it, 323-844-2303. I would love to answer your question in a future episode. I would also love to hear your voice. So please do call in. I think it would be amazing to have your voice broadcast on this show. Broadcast? Is this broad? I don't know what media is. I don't know what is broadcast. Oh, podcast on this show. Sorry. Wouldn't it be cool to have your voice podcast on this show? That also sounds wrong. Hotter Than Ever is produced by Erica Gerard and Podcast Productions. Our associate producer is Melody Carey. Music is by Chris Keating with vocals by Issa Fernandez. Come back next week and the week after and the week after for some really sexy interviews with some really phenomenal women who you wish you could hang out with. And on Hotter Than Ever, you and I get to do just that. Have a beautiful day, beautiful. Beautiful.